Okay, well, hopefully you got a handout um, on the music stand there in the back. Um, just a reminder that all of our uh, Sunday schools are recorded, and uh, we always put the uh, a PDF of the handout that's right there on Sermon Audio. If you go to the Sermon Audio page, you there see there's a little place where you can download the handout. So if you ever miss a Sunday school, or if you have to stay home for whatever reason, um, it'll be up there. And uh, what we're doing in this fall time is we're talking about what is the church and what is our mission. And uh, we're going to talk about lots of, you know, detailed, practical things like what are we supposed to be doing as a church? Um, how does God organize the church? Things like, you know, um, what, where did we get this whole thing about elders and pastors? And how, how do we know that we're doing it right? Um, uh, those are important questions. We'll talk about the sacraments, talk about the Word of God and the preaching of the Word, um, those, those great um, gifts that God has given to His church to further our mission. But in these first classes, we're, we're really just trying to answer the big question of what is the church. Um, and I think we all intuitively know that the church is way more than just like um, a special interest group or a club of religious people or a group of friends who like to be together. Um, we, we do like being together, <laughs> and we are friends, and, um, and we do, do love the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are much more than just a, a club or special interest group. Um, and what we hopefully gave you a sense of last time is that we are, we are at the very center of the absolutely epic story that God is telling through the history of the world. Um, that since the fall of humanity, it has been God's purpose to gather to himself a redeemed new humanity. And that redeemed new humanity is only possible through Jesus. And I hope you got that sense last time. I wanted to hammer this a little bit more last time, but just how that story of God rescuing us is really a story of tremendous grace. Like we are so undeservedly <laughs> made part of this glorious new humanity. Um, and so what we're going to talk about today is, um, and really in the next couple of times, we're going to kind of drill into some facets of that great epic story. Um, and I hope you remember from last time, we're going to return to this diagram a couple times today, but you know, there's, there's uh, this diagram I'm always drawing of, you know, uh, the fall of humanity, and then the progress towards the promises that we do see in the Old Testament, climaxing in Solomon and his glory, and really the kingdom of God coming in a shadowy way. But then that all falls apart because of the power of sin. And so what we're looking for is a new and better kingdom of God that will last forever. And what we talked about last time is that the cross is the really the, the linchpin of history. It's the turning point where the power of sin is decisively defeated, that's the cross, and a new and more, more triumphant power enters history, that's the resurrection and the new creation, which has greater power than sin. And so we talked about last time was, um, you know, you know those maps in the mall where like you're like, you are here, right? Um, you are here, right? Um, the church, here we are, um, we are somewhere on this path 
to glory. The return of Christ, we don't know when it will be, but it's coming. And so we're in this period where the decisive victory has been won, but it's not yet fully realized. It's already here, but it's not yet reached its climax. And so we're going to talk more about what that means, particularly talking about the most fundamental facet of what it means to be the church, which is our union with Jesus Christ. So if you look on your handout there, the very top of the handout, the title of this whole class is The Church is One with Jesus. If you want to know what the church is, if you want to, want to just have like a really quick, here's the thing that decisively defines us, you can say, we are one with Jesus, crucified and raised. That is the thing that makes us the church. That is the thing that distinguishes us from everybody else. We are one with Jesus. This is going to be the heart of absolutely everything I'm going to talk about this fall, is that we are one with Jesus. The implications of this are enormous. And in order to really start to understand this, you have to understand that we used to be one with Adam. And I don't want to steal Pastor Montgomery's thunder here because he's actually preaching for us today on uh, Romans 5. So this will be kind of like a little prep for you. I'm not going to linger here too much. I want, I want him to share with you the glory of this passage. But if you just turn in your Bibles with me to Romans 5, verse 18. This is one of the most important passages in the Bible. Um, in this passage, we see the, the basic structure of the entirety of history and of humanity. So Romans 5, we're just going to read verses 18 and 19. Therefore, Paul says, as one trespass, in other words, one sin, led to condemnation for all men. What's he talking about? Adam, when he sinned in the garden, that one sin led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. What's the one act of righteousness? Yeah, Christ going to the cross, being willing to die for us, right? Remember, uh, you know, the... Uh, that whole um, scene in the garden, right? Him saying, Father, possible, let this cup pass, but not my will, but yours be done. That was obedience that led to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So he's saying, saying the same thing twice there. Um, but we have Adam And what is this passage saying about everybody who's in Adam? They all share his sin. So the old humanity, this is basically everybody by default, okay? Everybody as they're naturally born. All the old humanity shares in the guilt of his sin. What else do they share in? Yeah, the condemnation. So guilt means you've done wrong, right? So condemnation is when God says you've done wrong. He finds you guilty, right? And the, yeah, it's, it's right. It's the result of judgment, right? So judgment could have one of two results. It could be acquittal or condemnation, right? And so condemnation, and then what was the thing you were Yeah, the consequences, which in this passage he says is what? Death, right? So... This is the old humanity in a nutshell. 
we are guilty, not just with our own sins, but here's the key idea. We share in Adam's sin. Because he represented us, when he fell, we all fell. And so that, what that means is you inherit, just by simply being his child, you inherit his sin. And this kind of wars against our, you know, American individualism, right? But the point of this is that, yes, you are individuals, but you are individuals united to a head. Everybody has a head that represents them. Okay, so the old humanity, that's where we were. And then Christ is the head of a new humanity. And there's no, there's no alternative to these. There's only two heads of the entire human race. Remember, Adam created out of the dust. Christ, he was, he was also very specially originated, wasn't he? Right? He came from, um, from Mary, of course, um, and so he's emerging out of the old humanity, but he is conceived by the power of the Spirit, a new beginning for humanity, a new head of the, a new humanity. And so what marks him? Well, it's the opposite of everything that we see here. So the opposite of guilt is righteousness. And the result of righteousness, what's the opposite of condemnation? Well, not just acquittal, but also um, it says justification. That's when God says, you are righteous. Jesus was, this is kind of mind-blowing, but he was actually justified when he was raised from the dead. We don't usually think of Jesus being justified, right? Because, like, he obviously never sinned, right? But he did have our sin laid upon him. And when he was raised from the dead, 1 Timothy 3, it says he was, it's often translated vindicated in that passage, but he was justified. It's the same exact word um, used here. He was justified, declared righteous by God the Father, and so, therefore, he deserves eternal life. The opposite of death, right? Um, He deserves it. It was given to us. It was given to him. And therefore, when we are in him, we get what he has, right? And this is the whole idea of Colossians 1, 13, when we read this. Um, you don't have to turn that. I'll just read this for you. He, that is God, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, the church, to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, Domain of darkness, transferred out, out of this old humanity, into the kingdom of his beloved son. That, in a nutshell, is what it means to be the church of Jesus. So any questions about that so far? Yeah. Right. Right. Great. Great point. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really important point. So just just the idea that, like, everybody starts here, with the exception of Jesus, right? This is the totality of humanity, at least at one stage, right? We are all part of, we're all Adam's children, um, at least initially, Whereas the new humanity does not include everybody. Um, It's only the elect, those whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world. 
Um, is this new humanity fully formed yet? Do we, have, do we see everybody um, who will be in the uh, kingdom of Christ um, in the kingdom yet? No, we don't, right? It's, we're, we're still, right? We're still here. And there are many people alive today who presently are in Adam, right? Who are in their sins, in bondage to sin. They are guilty. They are condemned. They are spiritually dead. Who one day, by the mercy of God, will be brought over here. And let's now find out, let's ask ourselves, how do you get from here to here? Obviously, it's something God does. He transfers you from one dominion to the other. But remember um, just some key passages. Uh, John 3, verse 5. Remember how um, Jesus says, you must be born again. In other words, you must, you were born once, part of the old humanity. You must be born again. And how does he say you must be born? What does, remember, anybody remember John 3? What does he say there about how you need to be reborn? Yes, by the Spirit who blows where he wills, right? And there's that idea of election again, right? He enters the ones whom he has chosen. And he, what does he do? He gives to us the gift of faith. Remember um, Ephesians 4, um, or, or sorry, yeah, Ephesians 2, where he says, um, this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so um, Ephesians 1, verse 13 says, In him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, so there's always that preaching of the word, right? The gospel of your salvation, when you heard that and believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of Jesus is the one who takes us dead people and makes us alive together with Jesus. And that making us alive together with Jesus, when the Spirit enters you, that is what we are talking about when we talk about union with Christ. Jesus is literally inside of you by his Spirit. He is in your heart. And you are now one with him. And the very like core reality that is you know, the sign of like the heart of your the spiritual heart starting to beat again is faith, right? Faith is that thing that the Spirit gives to us that is what living spiritual people do. They are believing, they are receiving, they are trusting in Jesus Christ. And so when you're brought from here to here, and, you know, the, the key phrase to just remember is by the Spirit and by faith. That's what our union, that's the, that's the way we get united to Christ. You've got, you got to remember this. It's by the Spirit and by faith. And of course, these, don't, these aren't just sort of like perfectly in parallel, right? Because the Spirit is the one who gives us faith, right? So the Spirit is God reaching down into our dead hearts, making us alive. But what is faith? It's us having been made alive, reaching up to God and receiving the gift, saying, yes, I will receive Christ. I want him, right? Um, so God reaching down to us so that, and then enabling us to reach back to him, we who were previously just lying there spiritually dead. Right? Um, and so once that link is established and you have a living union between Christ and his people, look at what the Bible says about our union. Here are all these like metaphors from creation 
that help us to wrap our heads around what is this thing called union? Because union can be kind of this abstract thing, but when you look all around, you realize, oh, wow, actually, I know what union is like. It's like a vine with branches. I am the vine, you are the branches, Jesus says. He who abides in me will bear much fruit, right? Imagine what it would be like for a branch not to be connected to the, the vine that reaches down into the ground. Death, right? You just wither. Um, similarly, in Romans 11, the olive tree um, metaphor, it's very similar. It's a tree trunk with its branches. Um, we are like a foundation with the building on top. That's a different kind of union, right? But you can appreciate how, like, how does the superstructure stay upright? Well, it's because it's on the foundation, right? Or like a husband and wife, which there's so many different elements of union there, right? There's a physical act of union, but there's also, um, hey, we are sharing life together. We, we have everything in common, husband and wife together. Um, here we even have these offspring, which are literally the two people becoming one. Um, the, 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 the result of that. Um, likewise, we are like a head and a body. Um, you know, the food entering, water entering through your head, and then the life going down into the body, and the body supporting it, each other, different organs working together, like a father and a son. Um, this idea of, of um, one, one propagating to the other its identity. So what do you do when you, you kind of chew on all these metaphors and think about, like, what are these all getting at? I came up with four words. I bet you guys could come up with more. Um, that our, our union is organic, by which I mean it's, it's life-giving. It's leading to growth. Um, it is relational. In other words, this is a union where it's not just sort of, like, what, what, you, what you don't get, say, for example, in, like, the, if you just looked at the, the vine or the tree, is, like, is there, like, mutual knowledge between... Uh, you know, the branches and the, the, the trunk. Well, that's really not that present in a plant, right? But when you have like a husband and a wife or a father and a son, there's mutual knowledge, intimacy, love. It's also formal. It's official. It gives status one to another. Um, the, Jesus gives us his status of being righteous, and we're going to talk about some other things he gives us in terms of status, and it's also beneficial. There's good things going in both directions. What, what does Christ give to us? We're going to talk about that. It's huge. What do we give back to Christ? Uh, not that he needs anything, but what do we give back? Yeah. Service, our fruit, excellent. Like, uh, here we are. Yeah, what were we going to say? Yeah, our adoration, our praise. Um, he loves that, right? Um, that's how we show him love, is saying, we're just so thankful um, when we're singing to him. He loves that. And what's amazing is that when you have two becoming one, there's what I call, I'm calling here the mystery of love, and Edwards is the one who really put me on to this. Um, his wonderful book, The End for Which God Created the World, um, this is one of the things he says in this. And, and try to wrap your minds around this, because when you really get this, you start to realize that love is something really amazing. In pursuing the interests of his people who stand in eternal union with him, there's that word union, right? In pursuing the interests of his people 
God pursues his own interests. And in pursuing the interests of God, his people are pursuing their own interests. For when he is glorified, they are benefited by it. And this is kind of counterintuitive, um, but John Piper's book, Desiring God, this is at the very heart of what he's saying. He's saying, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And again, another quote he has in here from Jonathan Edwards, really amazing. In some sense, this is Edwards speaking, in some sense, the most benevolent, generous person in the world seeks his own happiness in doing good to others because he places his happiness in their good. His mind is so enlarged as to take them, as it were, into himself. Thus, when they are happy, he feels it. He partakes with them and is happy in their happiness. You understand what I'm saying? That God, in pursuing our good and shedding all of this good down onto us, he's actually seeking his own glory. He's actually pursuing himself. And we might say, well, that sounds kind of selfish. I thought love was supposed to be completely disinterested. And both Piper and Edwards are saying, oh, you don't really understand what love is. Because Christ wanted to do this. It made him happy to do this, not in a selfish sense of like, I'm going to use these people to get what I want. But just he so loves us, and this is the idea of union, right? He so loves us that when we are happy, he feels our happiness as if it were his own. And likewise, when you become united to Christ, now everything that honors him and that is, is glorious for him now becomes something that makes you happy. That like when God is pleased, now I'm pleased simply because he's pleased, because I'm one with him. And so there's no more competition anymore. It's no more like, well, okay, I'll do this stuff for you, but you've got to do this stuff back for me. No, that, I mean, think about what marriage is supposed to be. Marriage is when you're blessing this other person, and you're like, I want you to be happy. And even if it comes at great expense to me, the fact that I'm making you happy, I'm blessing you, is actually advancing what I want, too, because you are now taken into me. Your interests cannot be distinguished from my interests. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, it's pretty, it's pretty mind-blowing. It's a great mystery, yes. That's right, yeah. That's right. Yes. That's right. And I, and I guess it, I... I what I want everybody to understand is why is that? Why is it that there's nothing selfish about what Jesus did? You're, you're exactly, you're totally getting what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because of his union with the Father, for him to do the Father's will was actually to advance his own interests because he so loved the Father that he couldn't distinguish his interests from the Father's interests, right? Any other thoughts? Are you, are you understanding how it is that by, by Jesus uniting us to himself, 
He's dissolving the difference between our interests and his interests. Do you see that? <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Um, let me ask you this, um, and this is kind of uh, trying to process what I'm saying. There are some theologians, especially um, Eastern Orthodox theologians, would want to say, um, they have this idea of theosis. Um, and as far as I understand it, I, I, I confess that I, you know, I'm not in that tradition, so I don't, I don't fully wrap my head around what they're trying to say, but um, insofar as they are saying that the height of being united to God is to become God, um, that's at least the way some of them phrase it, um, that the height of our union with God, the, the point at which we are completely glorified is when we actually become God, we become deified. What, what's wrong about that? What does that miss in terms of the biblical vision? Yeah, so first it erases the creator-creature distinction, right? Um, all of a sudden there's just the creator, right? What does it also miss in terms of what we're talking about in terms of union between Christ and the new humanity? When we start to say that the new humanity, the, the redeemed, become God, um, which is what some theologians would say. I'm not saying that. What, what are we now losing? What are we missing in the concept of union when, that, when we say that? Yeah, it's sort of, yeah, keep going. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it starts to get you into all these conundrums of, like, um, can we even distinguish ourselves from God anymore? And, like, who gets the credit for salvation? And, like, now do we deserve praise, right? Um, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a desire to be God that Adam did that was wrong, right? That was seizing prerogatives and privileges that was not his. Um, and, you know, Satan saying, you'll be like God, right? That was not the good kind of bearing the image of God sense of being like God. I think another thing that it's missing is just the whole idea of within the Trinity, for example, there are three persons who are in union, very special kind of union with each other. But it's really important that they remain distinct as well. Because in order for there to be love giving one to another, there needs to be distinct persons, one to another. And in a similar way, although it's a different kind of union, Christ imparting himself to the new humanity, the new humanity returning to him love and adoration and praise, these two, although they are one, must remain distinct too for the, the union to really be the beautiful picture of mutual self-giving love that it was meant to be. Well, um, let's talk then, because uh, time hurdles along as it always seems to do. Um, let's talk about the results of our being one with Jesus. All that Christ has is now ours, and that's a pretty big statement, and I need to qualify it. But think about all that the Bible says about what we get when we're united to Jesus. It's pretty, pretty stunning. We derive our identity and power from him. So there's 
life that's being given to us, but there's also identity that's being given to us. And this is where, you know, all those words I was given above, giving above organic, relational, official, beneficial. Um, I'm trying to capture a lot of these things. So like his righteousness. Think about this. When you become united to Jesus, you receive his righteousness such that you are now just as holy uh, in God's sight as Jesus himself. And I'm getting this, for example, from Philippians 3.9, where Paul says, I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So you imagine, here's Jesus. Is he perfectly righteous in and of himself? Yes. Does he, did he do amazingly righteous deeds while he was a man on earth? Yes, he went to the cross. Yes, he was obedient all through his whole life, even to the point of death on the cross, right? What does he then do? He then gives to us his righteousness so that that righteousness that he possesses just unto himself, he deserved it, he earned it, he, he made it. He now, it's called imputation. He imputes it to us so that now we possess it too, not because we've done all these amazing things, but it's now reckoned to us as though we had done all of those amazing things. And God now looks at us as though we had done obedience even to the point of death on the cross, that level of dedication. That's what he sees when he looks at you. He does not see all of the ways in which you fell, in which you you're mediocre in your obedience or downright rebellious. He doesn't see that anymore. He sees the status of Jesus as being your status. He gives to us his spirit, Romans 8, 9 through 11, the spirit of adoption. Yeah. 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 That's, yes. It's the same mechanism. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's right. So Adam's sin was imputed to us by our ordinary generation from him, by our, our being included in his, his race, his humanity. We received his guilt by imputation. It's the same mechanism, God reckoning him as our representative, and so therefore we have his guilt reckoned to us Christ is now our representative, his righteousness. That's right. Yeah, it's the same mechanism um, there. Yeah, and so Romans 9 brings that, or sorry, Romans 8, 9, verse, uh, verses 9 through 11, says, you are not in the flesh anymore, but in the spirit, if the spirit of God dwells in you. You're no longer in the flesh. This is what it means to be the old humanity, in the flesh, He's not talking about whether you have a body or not. Obviously, we're in the spirit right now. We're part of the new humanity, but we still have our old creation bodies. We still have fleshly bodies. That's not what he's talking about. In the flesh versus in the spirit. You receive now the spirit of Christ. And so his spirit is in you. And, and keep in mind, we have a spirit inside of us, right? We have, there's, there's your, your body and your soul. By analogy, the Spirit of Christ is now in you. The, the thing that animates Jesus is the Spirit. And that Spirit of Jesus is in you. Um, Colossians 1, 27. 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is in you. That's part of what the result of being one with him. And then his status and his roles as kings and as king and priest. Remember we talked about last time the king, kingly, priestly um, vision that God had for um, humanity, that we would be a people who would rule the world for his glory and that we would worship him. Jesus is the ultimate man. He's the priest king par excellence. He now gives those roles to us so that when you read Ephesians 2, you're now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Well, where's Jesus sitting? On the throne of God. Where does that mean you're sitting? On the throne of God. What do, who sits on thrones? Kings. You are ruling with Jesus, is what Ephesians 2 is saying. You are presently co-rulers with Jesus. And then, very hard text, but um, Revelation 20, when it says um, that those... Um, who are united and raised with Christ will reign for a thousand years. I believe the right understanding of that text is that we presently are in that thousand, this is the thousand years right here. The reign of Jesus has begun in his resurrection from the dead. Hebrews 1, he sat down at the majesty on high and has begun to reign as king. The reign of Jesus and therefore the reign of those united to Jesus is presently going on. Therefore, if you are one with Jesus, you are reigning with him right now. You may not feel like a really awesome ruler when you're feeling really sick or when you're struggling a lot with sin or when people are persecuting or making fun of you. But you are a co-ruler with Jesus and you are also priests of God. 1 Peter 2, verse 5, you are offering spiritual sacrifices. So you get his exalted status. You get his roles as king and priest, and you also get his mission. I should have included that in here. That's why we are going, doing the Great Commission, is we're completing what God has already begun in, in Jesus. You even get his storyline. As Jesus suffered and then was glorified, um, Coloss- uh, Romans eight seventeen. you are now heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Jesus, what was his storyline? Cross before crown. Suffering unto glory. What's our storyline? Suffering unto glory. We inherit even his storyline. Why is this happening to me? Do not be surprised at the fiery trial that's come upon you as though something strange were happening to you. This is not, not strange. You should expect that you who are united to a suffering Savior would yourself suffer in this present age. Uh, Paul even says, Colossians 1, I am completing what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. He's definitely not saying that the atonement was insufficient. What is he saying? He's saying, look, there's more suffering for us to do to fill out the storyline of suffering unto glory. We're united to a suffering Savior. So all that Jesus has is ours. And now let me just ask you this. And again, this is getting at, like, what does it mean to be one? What does this union really mean? All that Jesus has is ours. Does that mean that our rulership is identical to his rulership? Does that mean that our righteousness is identical to his righteousness? Does that mean that we have everything that he has in the same way that he has it? I hope that makes sense. Yeah. He's the true heir? Yeah. Right? 
right. Yeah, like with the prodigal son, everything I have is yours. It's not in the same way. The father has it kind of um, in an underived way, right? Whereas the son has it in a way that's derived from his father, right? Yeah, so Jesus, he actually earned the righteousness. In our case, the righteousness was imputed. Jesus as the high king, right? We're reigning with him, but always under him, right? Um, so what he has in an underived preeminent way as the head we now have in a derived but true, true way as the body. And it's really important we keep that in mind because we don't want to exalt ourselves over him even while we revel in the fact that we have everything that he has. I mean, it's amazing. Good. So, um, okay, we're one with Jesus. We have everything that he has. And then get this. This is also just so important for understanding what the church is. We also are not just one with him, but we're also one with everybody who is one with him. You're one with everybody who is one with Jesus. So Ephesians 4 says this very eloquently. There's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So you could, you could talk to somebody who's your contemporary, who speaks the same language as you. He, he or she may look like you and um, have all the same kinds of interests as you. But if they are in Adam, there is a complete, like, distance between you and that person, whereas somebody else who may have lived an entirely, entirely different time of history, spoke an entirely different language from you, look entirely different from you, have so many different like cultural and, and all different kinds of other differences from you, such that you would scarcely know what, what to even begin to talk about if you were to meet this person. And yet, that fellow brother or sister who lived like a thousand years ago in some faraway country if they are one with Christ, you have more in common with that person than with a person who's in Adam. This really was brought home to me once when I was in Africa and I was worshiping at this village church. Um, I was teaching a class over there and, and uh, there was this elderly lady in the village church who didn't speak any English at all, but her son did and, and she came up to me and, and just said you know, how thankful she was that she was here. And I was like, this is my sister in Christ. Even though, again, like I, I share so little in common with this woman, and yet, in, in, and that's just the superficial stuff. I share so much in common with this person. And you know what? You get to experience that union with the church throughout all the ages every single Lord's Day. So when you come into worship, this is what Hebrews 12 says. I mean, I, I'm not making this up. Hebrews 12 says, You have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Do you realize that on the Lord's Day, yes, physically we're here in Vandalia, Ohio, and there's only, you know, 180 of us or whatever who's, who are present here. You are actually in the presence, not just of every other church that's presently worshiping the living God, but you're actually in the presence of the souls of the righteous who have gone before you. So that as you're worshiping before the throne of God, you're present with everybody who is also before the throne of God. I mean, it's awesome. It's incredible. And so you are one with them. And we're going to reflect on what that means hopefully in a moment. But I have to say one more thing here about our union. But before I move to point three, any questions so far on what I've said? Yeah, Scott. 
Yeah, no problem. Yeah, yeah. Yes, the Spirit. Mm hmm. Okay. The one who unites us. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Great question. So the question is, for people who don't believe in the doctrine of effectual calling or um, the idea that regeneration must precede faith, in other words, you can't, you can't believe in God unless the Spirit first makes you alive together with Christ, right? Um, how would they interpret passages like John 3 and, and other places where it says you must be born again by the Spirit, right? Um, you know, I, I mean, I did a Bible study once with someone who is, uh, who is an Arminian, um, just trying to talk through the things of God. We didn't really have like, a, I didn't have like an agenda of I want to like make you reformed or something, but um, what was so fascinating was him just saying like, you know, there it is. You must be born again by the Spirit. It's right there in the text. And he says, yeah, but, you know, until we believe, the Spirit really can't do anything, right? And it just, I don't know, there was just a, to me, it was such a jarring disconnect where the passage is so overtly, you, you need, you're, you're like dead. You need to be born. You need to be made new. Like, you, you don't even have the faculty to believe. Like, that part of you is, like, shriveled, dead, non-existent. God needs to create that in you. Um, and, it, and it's just, I think, this idea of just, you know, the, the idea that if that's true, the fear is then that no longer are we really making a real decision anymore. Um, whereas what I'm trying to say is when the Spirit makes you alive, He gives you the ability and the desire to make this decision to believe, right? So it is a real decision. I am choosing to believe in Jesus, but that decision is made possible by the unilateral work of the Spirit, the Spirit alone making us alive. Um, I don't know what <laughs> more to say, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's definitely in the air. Yeah, thank you for connecting those dots. Yeah, because it, it is in the air that we breathe every single day in America. It's like... You choose you, right? You do you. you your choice is like the, the most fundamental um, thing for determining your identity, what you decide. And what, what this is saying is actually God chose you. And he's coming and entering into your life, interrupting your sinful choices and saying, I have a better identity for you that I'm going to give to you. and I'm going to impart it to you. And here's the gift, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. And yet, here's the thing. This is the thing we have to now wrap our heads around. This wonderful union I've been describing, it's not yet perfected. It won't be perfect until Jesus returns. And this is, again, why I did the whole grand story of the church before I then did this class, is I wanted you to have this, this idea, this picture in front of you. And for us to just now process this for a second, it's what we call the already and the not yet. It's... The fancy term is inaugurated eschatology. We, we are dealing with end times realities when Jesus rose from the dead. Like when Jesus rose from the dead, 
the final judgment, that's the cross, gave way to the new creation. And, and now Paul can say to us, if anyone is in Christ, behold, the new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. So the new creation, the end times new creation is already on the scene of history. It's intruded into history, and it is a present reality. The, there will not be like a better kingdom that's going to come after Jesus' kingdom. There will not be a better king that's going to come after Jesus, the king, or a better priest, right? The once-for-all sacrifice has been offered, never to be surpassed. And yet, we do him no dishonor or disservice to say, and yet that new creation is not yet fully consummated. It's part of how he's ordained this present phase of history. We are now living in the time between the times. The first and second comings of Christ stretches out over this present age in which we live. And so, the ultimate union that will never be surpassed is here. And we presently are enjoying the, the rich reward, the eternal life gift that we will be enjoying for all eternity. It's not like it's going to be some different you know, kind of um, union or, or different kind of um, you know, relationship with Christ that um, we're going to look into uh, the future and get. It's the same union, but that union hasn't been perfected. And so Philippians 3.12 is one place we see this. He says, Paul says this, not that I've already obtained what he's describing or I'm already perfect. He says, I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Again, union, I am made, I am belonging to Jesus. Remember the phrase from last time, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That's union language, right? That's covenantal union. And yet, he says, because Christ has made me his own, I now press on to make him my own, but I haven't yet received it perfectly yet. And so this leads to some really important under things we must understand if we're going to understand the church in this present age. First off, sin still persists in the church. Like, we haven't yet had that, that union of Christ imparting his righteousness to us. We haven't had that perfected yet. We have it as a status perfectly, Christ looks at us and he sees perfect righteousness. That's why God the Father sees us, perfect righteousness. And yet that righteousness is also being worked into us, right? And as God is like kneading that righteousness into us, sanctifying us is what we call it, that hasn't been completed yet. And so we still struggle with sin. We still have evil thoughts. We still do evil things. We say evil words. And we need to know this. Because we can see all this and say, whoa, am I even a Christian? Like, good grief. Look, I can't believe I just did that. And we're so grieved. And we're like, I just, I just question whether I'm, re I'm for real. We need to remember that there's the not yet. Christ is still at work in you. He's still driving sin out of you. And so we, don't, we shouldn't be discouraged if we're not yet where we want to be and where we know God wants us to be. He's taking us there. And similarly, this, so this, is, this is true on an individual level, but it's also true on like a corporate, like a, a group level, okay? So the church is not perfectly one, even though we are intrinsically one with each other. Any, any true Christian you meet anywhere, you are one with that person, and you will be one with them for all eternity, right? Nothing can ever reverse that. Nothing can undermine that. And yet, visibly, that might not be the case yet. You know, Hebrews 2, this is also on your sheet, Hebrews 2.8. All things are under Jesus' feet, and yet we don't yet see all things under his feet, right? 
you are all one with every other believer in the entire world, and yet we don't yet see that oneness. And what are some ways we don't see that oneness? Well, there are conflicts between churches. Right now, there are churches who confess different things that are irreconcilable with each other. We were just talking about one of those things, right? The differences between Reformed and Arminian Christians. But there's plenty more, including the whole idea of whether we even ought to be objectively and, and, and even structurally one with other churches. So there are many churches, especially in America, that believe that they are perfectly right in being independent, having no formal relationship with any other church. It's like, here we are, this little island of, who knows, maybe 200, maybe 1,000 Christians, and we have no formal connection to any other Christians who can ever, like, say, what are you doing? Or, or in, in any kind of, like, formal way say, okay, you're a member of this church, and now you're transferring over here to this church. All you have to do is just, you know, we're just going to have a letter of transfer and say, look, this person is now accountable to you guys. We don't have to, like, re-interview this person, right? The union of the church is imperfect. There are lots of denominations, sometimes because of confessional differences, sometimes because of unresolved sin. Likewise, church membership today includes many who are truly saved, but also many who are not. So you have in the scriptures... You know, Jesus talks about there being wolves in sheep's clothing or the parable of the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the weeds, right? Where here's the one field and yet not all of them, even though it's the master's field, not all of them are truly the wheat. Or Paul saying, Romans 9, not all Israel is Israel. So the church, part of what we have to get at when we say the church is not yet perfected in holiness is there's going to be false Christians in the church who are baptized, recognized as Christians, taking the Lord's Supper, and yet no faith. We grieve, but it's part of this present age. And even our old creation bodies being subject to suffering and humiliation, this is part of what it means still to be imperfect. And yet we have this promise that God will one each day bring the church closer and closer to the glorious victory he's already won through Jesus. So we see all these ways in which we're imperfect and we're struggling, lots of things we could say about the not yet, and yet it's not yet. It's going to one day disappear, all that bad stuff, and we will be with Christ perfected in glory. So let's think through the implications of this. And in particular, since we only have a couple minutes, I want to think about the implications of not yet. Church has got all these problems, and you look all around you, and Many of you, I imagine, have had very difficult experiences in churches where you just like, you run up against the sin of, of people, of sometimes sin of church leaders who have done you wrong. Um, you run up against um, church leaders who have abandoned the teaching of Scripture, um, church leaders who have, supposed to be protecting the flock, but they're actually exploiting the flock, right? How are we to respond to this? How should we answer somebody who says, I am done with the visible church. I'm done with all of these hypocrites. I'm going to do my own thing because they've been burned. How should we use what I just taught you today to answer that Christian? They've been hurt badly by the not yet aspect of the church. How should we use what I just gave to you to answer that person? 
Yeah, Josh. Yeah, how, how could you know that you're, in particular, what, what was it again? Yeah, so even your ability to see their sin is a gift, right? So having that humility to realize, hey, I wouldn't even be where I'm at to see this as sin if it weren't for the grace of God. Yeah, so that's humbling and puts us in the right frame. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Jesus himself experienced this with his disciples, right? Their hypocrisy, they abandoned him, right? And you didn't stop loving them, moving towards him. You didn't give up on them, right? And I think that's what I want to encourage you with is, you know, even when the church fails us, really fails us, or when the church is just plain mediocre and not the glorious new humanity that we're really wanting to see, just remembering that, yes, we're not, all, we're not there yet, but we will get there. By the power of Jesus, we are one with Jesus, and he will perfect the union we have with him. And so we should have a positive attitude towards other Christians, even those who really disagree with us or we feel like, wow, there's so many differences between us. How could we ever really see this unity realized? We will, and it will be the victory of Jesus through his spirit in us. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We, keeping our eyes on him and what he's objectively done is the answer to that discouragement. Yeah, let's thank him for that. Lord, we thank you for the gift of union with Christ and the fact that we are not just individually united to Christ, but we are together, all of us united to him as a body. And we are so thankful for the, the objective reality of this union that it's, it's real, it's, it's living in us. Um, right now, the Spirit is in each of us. And yet, Lord, we also grieve that this union is not yet fully realized. In our own hearts, we see so much sin. In the visible body of Jesus, we see so much that's not right, so much that is not in keeping with Jesus and his character. And we pray, Father, that we would not become obsessed um, or discouraged with um, the, the disappointments of sin but instead, Lord, that we would really rejoice and believe that our fundamental identity is not, not this mediocrity, but it is, in fact, the, the, the union that we have with Jesus and that he really will make us to be what he already is, glorious and perfectly holy. And so we would pray, hasten the day of your return, Lord Jesus. Hasten the day when faith will be made sight. And we pray in Jesus' name.